Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employer's respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. You don't put those inside of you, do you? This is a show about women. I mean, you do? Finally, a show about women that isn't just a thinly-veiled aspirational nightmare. It's not hosted, not narrated, we're just dropping into a woman's world. I found out when my dad was gay when I was 10. We were in a convertible on the 405 freeway, listening to the B-52s. And looking back, I should have said, this is gay. This is already all gay. <laughs> Listen to Finally a Show on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, Ready or Not 2024 is here, and we here at Breaking Points are already thinking of ways we can up our game for this critical election. We rely on our premium subs to expand coverage, upgrade the studio, add staff, give you guys the best independent coverage that is possible. If you like what we're all about, it means the absolute world to have your support. What are you waiting for? Become a premium subscriber today at BreakingPoints.com. Well, welcome to the first edition of Counterpoints in 2023. We're happy to see everybody today. Ryan, how you doing? Good. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to everybody out there. So Ryan is rocking the Andrew Ross Sorkin That's look right. today. <laughs> He's totally, if you're watching this, you'll see it's tropical. I think what happened is Sagar went to Tulum, and we decided yeah. to set the temperature here to Tulum yeah. levels. It's so also, that's what we're doing. It's also climate change. It's like <laughs> 65 degrees or so in Washington, D.C., and so the building's just don't know how to deal with it. They have four seasons that they're prepared for. When winter comes and the climate wants to give you spring or fall, they just blast the heat anyway. And the funny thing is Ryan called ahead and said, I'm wearing a wool jacket today. Please set the studio <laughs> to a preferred temperature. Set it, set it super hot. Yeah. <laughs> no, listen. Um, no, uh, actually... It was really hot in here. Yeah. It still is really hot in here. That said, Ryan actually has been, Ryan has reason, whether or not it's hot in the studio, you have reason to be a sort of gruff and like an ink-stained wretch today because you were all over Capitol Hill oh, yesterday. Right. Well, it was a lot of fun. Uh, and so late, later in the show, we're going to talk to Matt, Matt Taibbi. We'll, we've got a lot to get into. But the drama, of course, was on Capitol Hill. Yes. And yeah, so I was in the, I was in the House press gallery for that, watching it unfold, which... There was almost more drama in the kind of buildup than in the actual unfolding of it because nothing changed except for one vote. So, <laughs> to, so to back it up, Kevin, Kevin McCarthy uh, has been eyeing the speakership since, probably since he was four or five years old. Yes. Like never, didn't want to be president, just wanted to be Speaker of the House. Mm -hmm. And so the, the man gets in position and there are now this, there's this rump group of uh, right-wing Republicans who are running a kind of never Kevin 
type of campaign. His campaign is called Only Kevin. He has given up. It's middle uh, school, basically. Basically, yes, because he's given up no so many. He's given up so many different concessions to them that it seems like the only thing left that he could give would be himself. Like they just don't want him. Yeah. At this point. Yeah. They don't trust him. The the problem. So they had three votes yesterday. Uh, the, the, he won two hundred and three votes the first time, which is fifteen short of of the two eighteen he needed. Second time he won two hundred three again. The third time he won two hundred two. So now he has twenty uh, opponents. Uh, so at, at this point, it's very hard to see what his path is to the speakership. Yet at the same time. The opponents don't have a path yeah. to victory either. So they're just kind of staring at each other. They adjourned. They didn't have to adjourn, but Democrats agreed to adjourn last night. And, and all the parties agreed to, to adjourn. So now they're going to do it again today, still with no path forward. You were talking about how kind of Tucker Carlson, who, if, if anybody's going to mediate this, maybe it'll be Tucker Carlson, <laughs> uh, threw out some ideas. What was his... Well, what, what was his take on, on what McCarthy's path is? Right. So Tucker obviously comes on at night after all of these negotiations had failed, basically, and said, uh, all right, how about this? Kevin McCarthy agrees to release all files related to January 6th and agrees to put Thomas Massey in charge of this church-like committee into the intelligence community that Kevin McCarthy has promised to convene. Um, personally, I'm, I'm fine with both of those points. There's a question, though, as to whether, uh, and, and you probably have had a chance to chat with some folks on the Hill yesterday, that's enough to say, to your point, they're already saying, we don't trust Kevin McCarthy. The problem is not, you know, so, mm-hmm. so it's like, how much more stuff can we get from him? Because he made a concession on one of the biggest possible things that he could concede on, which is called the motion to vacate. It sounds like a dumb procedural beltway thing. And it is, but it's hugely consequential because it's what ousted John Boehner. It's what Mark Meadows used to force John Boehner out of leadership years ago. Nancy Pelosi, the shrewd tactician that she is, immediately was like, hell no to this, got rid of it. They wanted to bring it back. Kevin McCarthy agreed to bring it back, meaning five members of his caucus could basically at any time be like, Right. Bye, and and stage a coup, which is a really a huge concession from him. Um, they've also, from the perspective of the establishment Republicans, that was just a massive concession. Um, he's agreed to impeaching, uh, having impeachment hearing for Alejandro Mayorkas. One thing he told me he wouldn't do in September, he then, by the time December rolled around, was like, yeah, let's do it. Uh, he's given yeah. them a right. lot, and, right. and they have a lot to be happy with. They should really be taking the W, but because it's more about personality than policy in this case, they think personality is policy, uh, because it's more about that, nothing is going to satisfy it. So does the Tucker point satisfy it? I don't know. Right now, with Tucker saying it rather than McCarthy saying it, maybe that makes it a little bit easier for them. Can we put up A5, actually? Uh, This this has uh, Kevin McCarthy basically saying that He's, he's talking about Matt Gates here, yeah. uh, and Matt Gates and others that they basically made the same, attempted to make the same deal that Tucker is suggesting. So let's roll a five here. Last night I was presented the only way to have 218 votes. If I provided certain members with certain positions, certain gavels to take over the church committee to have certain budgets, and they even came to the position where one Matt Gates said, "I don't care if we go to plurality and we elect Hakeem Jeffries, and it hurts the new frontline members not to get reelected." So first of all, he's talking about the church committee there, which yeah. is this this subcommittee that would have investigatory powers, basically a deep state committee. Now, the, church, yes. the church committee is a, is a reference to uh, Senator uh, Frank Church back in the 70s who 
who exposed all sorts of malfeasance on the part of the deep state, if you want to call them that at the time. I don't know if that term was much in circulation at the time. <laughs> uh, but he, he exposed all sorts of different crimes that the uh, CIA, FBI, other, other, el- other elements of the gun and government apparatus had been committing you know, post-World War II up, up through then. And so there's been this, pre- this, and it's in the rules. Like if you, if you read the rules package, there is a committee in there for that type of oversight. Look, it sounds like uh, they, they were making a demand for who would run it. Tucker wants Thomas Massey yep. to run it, right? Yeah, he wants Thomas yeah. Massey. And Thomas Massey is a like super interesting maverick liber- libertarian. Um, It'd be great for journalism. It would be fantastic for <laughs> he, he was running that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I'm all for it. And you know what? They need somebody who's going to basically take no prisoners, and that would be a, the the person that you would think of would be a Thomas Bassey, somebody who doesn't care whether he's voting with the party line or not. Uh, so I think Tucker's suggestion is not a bad one. Um, but again, the question is: Does that move votes when with a Matt Gates, for instance, like? Here is your sense that what they're doing right now is is trying to take this as far as they possibly can to the point where they have squeezed every last concession out of Kevin McCarthy that they possibly can. And then they'll say, okay, or is it just, we don't care, blow it all up. If Hakeem Jeffries gets in, Hakeem Jeffries gets in. Or here's the third option. It's a combination of everything and nobody really knows what the plan is. I think it's I think it's the latter. Yeah. Because, yeah, I, I don't think that they have thought like I don't think they have a one two three four five. Here's how we get to exactly where we are. I think it's more of a kind of Trump style approach <laughs> to it that we're just going to live to fight another day. Well, and we're if not going to give into something we don't want, and then we're going to keep pushing. And if it gets blown up, who cares? And then if it gets blown up, who cares? What do you, what did you think? Uh, do you believe that Gates did tell him that uh, he's okay with? Uh, Hakeem Jeffries taking over. First of all, that's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Like it's basically impossible for mm-hmm. that to happen. Right. It'd be hilarious if this is, uh, if this clip is being played in a couple of weeks <laughs> when Hakeem <laughs> Jeffries is speaker. It's it's virtually impossible. Yeah. Uh, for it to happen, I could see Gates saying it as a bluff, mm-hmm. like to to demonstrate to him how little he cares. Yeah. About whether or not McCarthy survives or not. A hundred percent. And I've said a couple of times on our podcast, Federalist Radio Hour, and maybe he was listening, uh, that all Republicans should just like cast, if you really want to do a protest vote, you should just get as many Republicans as possible to vote for Ilhan Omar and just stick it to Dem leadership, Republican leadership at the same time in such a narrowly divided House of Representatives and just say, screw it. Speaker Omar? Yes. If you're really trying to blow it all up, then do it then do it. But at this point, it's such a muddled strategy. They've gotten so much. They really have gotten so much out of Kevin McCarthy. Kevin McCarthy uh, sort of sees himself as someone who stuck his neck out for Jim Jordan, put him on oversight when a lot of establishment Republicans didn't. He's friendly with Marjorie mm-hmm. Taylor Greene, which is in D.C., Republican circles, unheard of that you would have an establishment, a denizen of the sort of Washington establishment, also be on personally friendly terms with a, like, person of the the sort of positioning in the party that Marjorie Taylor Greene holds. Um, And I think he was really more confident because of that. I don't think he was ever perfectly confident, Mm -hmm. um, but because it was always like this, it was always, what are they going to do? They're going to throw bombs. And that's exactly what they ended up doing. But they really have a, they have a W to take. The W is on the table. Um, It's there. And if we can put up, if we can put up a two, I'm curious for your take on tr- Trump's role in this entire thing. So somebody, 
called up Donald Trump yesterday and asked him, hey, are you sticking by your endorsement of your Kevin? Mm -hmm. That's one of his best nicknames, my Kevin. Uh, And Trump, uh, who is anything if if not the least loyal person on the planet, (laughs) said, you know what, let's see. What do you say? Let's see how it goes. We'll see what happens. We'll see how it all works out. Yeah. Uh, So does Trump have a role in all of this? It sounds like, according to him, He's got some of these renegades calling him, maybe some of the others calling him, maybe Mike Kevin is calling him. Mm-hmm. Uh, can't, or does he just not have enough juice left to uh, move the needle inside the Republican conference? I don't think he's moving the needle inside the Republican conference, which is very interesting, actually, to watch. <laughs> because that was the expectation, is that Donald Trump would be sort of the kingmaker. Um, but he's really been on the sideline of this particular battle. If he had, again, positioned himself differently, if he weren't, for instance, attacking pro-life voters on True Social this week, it may be <laughs> easier right. for him to like actually have a, a say right now, but um, I think they're doing most of this of their own accord, and that's what's particularly interesting. Now, Kevin McCarthy, something interesting about him is if you contrast his relationship with Trump with Paul Ryan's relationship with Trump. Um, it's a it's totally a study in contrast, and like he learned from Paul Ryan. That's something I talked to him about. It, he learned from those kind of mistakes. He let Paul Ryan go before him, take the arrows, and then sort of realized that maybe there mm-hmm. was a different way to do this. Um, and that's one of the big differences between the two of them. It's one of the things that helped him build relationships with people like, say, Marjorie Taylor Greene. <laughs> um, and so he's been shrewd about it. But after January 6th, their split, you know, seemed to be. Not great. And I, I want to get to the, the the intrigue with Matt Gates and AOC on the floor in a second, but I'm curious Absolutely. for your take on this split between Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene, because Greene has been kind of pro-McCarthy for a while. I mean, yes. In December, she was tweeting, like, look, McCarthy has promised to impeach Biden if there's evidence to impeach him, and she, she listed all her reasons mm-hmm. uh, why you, they should work with the Kevin that they have rather than try to get a new Kevin. Uh, whereas Boebert, to, to, this, to this day, is still resisting him. What, you know, uh, are, are they are they anything of a squad? Have they ever been? What's what's their situation? How did they get to a place where they're kind of publicly attacking each other over this strategy? Yeah, I think this says way more about the Freedom Caucus than it does about Kevin McCarthy, um, because again, that's the Freedom Caucus has in the past been extremely successful because they have been tightly knit. They've been able to sort of rally around the cause of opposition to leadership, opposition to the establishment, which is a really strong unifier. That's something that the squad has kind of grappled with as well. There are always interesting parallels between the Freedom Caucus and the squad. But the fact that they're on a different page about something like this, um, I think is it's not, it shows that this is not a clean litmus test. You know, if you vote for Kevin McCarthy here, it doesn't mean you are, as Republicans might say, a squish or not. (laughs) It's not that clean litmus test, even though some people are trying to make it into one. Because um, for people like Lauren Boebert, I think she sees her cost-benefit analysis. She's saying, I can get, first of all, a lot of attention, a lot of publicity, and sort of be seen as a star in the same way that Mark Meadows and Jim Jordan became stars in the fight against John Boehner. I think she sees this Mm. moment as that. And Marjorie Taylor Greene sees this moment as saying, well, I can consolidate support. I can you know, really build on my support with McCarthy, my relationship with McCarthy. I can win a lot of points right here for future negotiations and policymaking down the line and maybe get more W's out of it from that sense. So those are, I think it's just two sides of that coin. And you've seen members taking swipes at Lauren Boebert saying, you know, when, when you can win a deep red district by more than like 50 votes, yeah. then you can come here and dictate to us <laughs> you know, how, we, how we ought to run things. But until then... 
uh, no thanks. And so the, the intrigue that did break through that we did learn about uh, was between uh, Matt Gates and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, if we, if we can play that video here. So basically Matt Gates literally crossed the aisle, goes over, talks to AOC because apparently he believes actually that AOC runs a Democratic Party. <laughs> like he, that's not just something like he hears on Fox and that he says he maybe actually believes it to be true. And I, I love that in him. Like it's there's some hope there. <laughs> That's actually true. Uh, but so he, he walks over. There's a lot of speculation about what they said. I reported in The Intercept, we could put that up here, that basically what Matt Gates was saying was that, hey, Kevin McCarthy has been, he's been making a bunch of threats against us, and he has been telling us that he believes he's going to be able to get a deal with Democrats, that, a lot, that enough Democrats are going to vote present that it's going to allow him to win with his 202 or 203 or 205 or even 210 votes. And so therefore, all of you people who are fighting me are out on a limb here mm. and you're, you're gonna get annihilated you know, once Democrats start to fold and, and kind of bail me out of this jam. Then AOC tells him, I don't think that that's the case. Right. Then she goes back to party leadership and I think you can see it at the end saying, I'll get back to you or something like that. So she goes back to party labor. She, she's like, look, there's, there's no bailing out of Kevin McCarthy here, is there? Because McCarthy's telling his members that Democrats are going to bail him out. And the party leadership tells AOC, no, no absolutely not. <laughs> like, he's on his own. Nobody here is voting present. Nobody here is leaving. Like, that was another wishful thinking thing that started right. circulating kind of from the McCarthy camp that Democrats were just going to get bored and leave. Right, which like, lowers the threshold. Which, which then would lower the threshold, which, which to me suggests that they're out of plays. Like, if they're just hoping that Democrats are going to get bored, like, that's not how legislating tends to work. But although we're in uncharted territory, who knows? So what did, what did you make of, of Gates kind of using AOC to get intel from Democrats. Well, it was a great report because everybody on Twitter, I mean, this was so many people on Twitter were speculating what happened, what happened, wondering what happened. And Ryan's like, oh, I got this. <laughs> I asked Gates, I asked her. She's the only one that responded. Yeah, yeah. no, it was, it was really interesting. And so I think that's also to the point about them being out of plays. There's reporting suggesting right now that's the play for today. That's one of the plays that Kevin McCarthy is perhaps banking just, on just, today. Just run out the clock. Get, like. Getting Democrats to vote present, which lowers the threshold so that he doesn't need the 218, that you can bring right. it down. And that there's precedent for that. I mean, what, didn't Nancy Pelosi win with 216? Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So it's it's not as though that's a crazy idea. Um, and maybe if you're a certain type of Democrat, there's logic to be had in manipulating uh, and maybe taking some— He'd have some, to give. What would he give? Debt ceiling? I mean, what would— Dem like the There's only a lot he could give, um, but it hasn't really been on the table so far. So I don't know exactly what it is. But, it, it, like, debt ceiling is a great example. There could be something like that. There could be committee stuff— um, there's, there's all kinds of stuff but, potentially but out there. But then it screws up his calculus for, because he can't give away something that he gave to a Republican in order to win their vote. Yeah, exactly. So, so good luck. Good, good luck. Oh boy, we'll be watching this all day. Yeah, it's a pickle. Yeah. I mean, quite like it is, it is actually a pickle. You've got a runner between second and <laughs> yes. third, and the ball is going back and forth. Uh, so we'll be paying attention. Ryan, you heading back to the Hill today? Yes. Yeah. yeah wouldn't miss it. Jacket? Oh, yeah. You, you actually can't be there without a jacket. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, there was also big news yesterday on the Twitter front because we had another Twitter files dump Matt Taibbi, as Ryan said, will be with us later in the show. He had sort of a two-part Twitter files dump yesterday. We're going to start with the first part here, which I think personally 
I think contained one of the more interesting revelations of the entire, one of the more important too, not just interesting, but one of the more important revelations of the entire uh, Twitter files uh, disclosure process. Let's start with B1 and put the tear sheet up on the screen. There you see the headline from Taibi Substack, why Twitter let the intelligence community in. We can then go over here to B3 because Taibi posted this Twitter thread in addition to his Substack an incredible long thread basically showing the push and pull between our government, uh, between the FBI and all of them uh, going back and forth and the media trying to to figure out where the pressure points are inside of Twitter. Basically, uh, you have reporters, you have the government pushing Twitter to find Russian bots Mm -hmm. where there aren't Russian bots. And so Taibi has these Twitter threads where people are, has this thread where you have emails from inside Twitter showing, hey, you know, the government has just sent us all of these accounts that they're saying are bots. And Mark Warner is telling us we have to go find the Russian infiltration of Twitter. Um, And inside Twitter, they're telling, you know, constantly keep pushing reporters to Facebook. This is really Mm -hmm. Facebook's problem. Um, But they're also saying, listen, we can't find this. This is this is not what we have on our end. And why I thought that was so important, if we could put uh, B4 again on the screen, personally, I thought it was so important because there's this line from an, e- an email where it says, reporters now know this is a model that works. Uh, that's an email from inside Twitter. What do they mean by that? So they're saying, Given we've now suspended all accounts, we will take a hit in the press that moves from BuzzFeed to more establishment publications. We'll work to contain it. So BuzzFeed's working on a story. This is an email from someone inside Twitter. Relatedly, we can expect more investigation of accounts that are tangentially associated with the IRA handover to the U.S. committees buoyed by academic brand names. Reporters now know this is a model that works. A model as in like uh, for reporting a story, a format, like we found a bot. They or, didn't take it down. We told we told Twitter about it. They, they took it down, and boom, we have a story. Or basically, we can either take we we can fabricate a problem inside Twitter based on you know maybe one bot account or based on allegations that are fuzzy from the intelligence community. We can sort of fabricate a story and then force it to become a story by making Twitter respond. And that's a model I've seen that happen all mm-hmm. the time. Like I, I see that as a broader model of cancel culture. It happened a lot right. in different spaces. Right, yeah, because you cancel this bot. Right. Yes. Powerful people <laughs> yeah. realized that it could be exploited and they were happy to exploit it. So Twitter, terrified of the, the PR backlash, has to respond to this because they see BuzzFeed working on the story. And this actually happened over at The Federalist. And a reporter at NBC News uh, said that our comments were in some way like beyond the pale, even though there are plenty of websites that have comments beyond the pale um, and went to, I think it was Google ad services at the time, Google ad services, basically a monopoly and said, you know, what are you going to do about this? And Google was like, oh, maybe we'll have to kick Federalist off of our our ad platform uh, because a reporter went to them and fabricated this entire news cycle. And it's just a waste of everyone's time. But it also shows how I think powerful people have exploited the media and how journalists have allowed themselves to be exploited in the service of really powerful government and business interests. And so we do know that there is this little sub-covert agency, whatever you want to call it, the Internet Research Agency. The IRA. Basically, basically, you know, a Kremlin-type operation. The same, you know, very similar to what a lot of other governments do. I think 
Russia's probably you know on the you know, Russia and the United States, China probably on the leading edge of this of this type of thing. But for all of the investigations that have been done, they seem to have uncovered a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of spending mm-hmm. on uh, we know on on Facebook, which it when you compare it to a multi-billion dollar presidential campaign is really hard to see as as anything significant if if somebody pitches you or me on a story and they and, you, and we say well how how much are you spending on this campaign and they were like well $150,000 be like yeah no like yeah. sorry like we we're covering much more important things than that mm-hmm. so it wouldn't even be worth a single article probably uh, un- unless it was Russia that pitched it, we're like, actually, that's illegal. So we'll do a little story about how you can't <laughs> legally do that. Yeah. But what, what's interesting, and if we could put up B2 here, this is the one I found really fascinating, where you have a, a Twitter employee saying that the TLDR is that, quote, we have, we have found suspicious accounts which demonstrate our investigation strategy is working. However, we see no evidence of a coordinated approach. All of the accounts found seem to be lone wolf type activity, different timing, spend, targeting, less than $10,000 in ad spending. And so what, what they're saying there is that they, they actually are finding you know, plenty of bots. Then there's no, no, no necessarily a shortage of bots, but they're not able to find that this is coordinated state activity. Which, which you can find, and they right, have found which, with others. Right, if, if it was, it would be clear that it, that it was. So this, these particular bots that were getting flagged were not. And it just seems like both the senators and the House members and the intelligence community, some of them I think were operating in bad faith and wanted to impute this, you know, th- these campaigns to Russia. I think others probably just see Russia everywhere. Yes. And so believed it. And then others, I think, watch their mentions fill up with trash and, and criticism. Mm-hmm. And everybody just assumes it's a bot. <laughs> like everyone who gets criticized. Because it's a cope. Yeah, it's a cope. Everyone who gets criticized online is like, clearly that's a bot. There's no real human. Yeah. Who Shut could, up, bot. Who could read my take. <laughs> And, and find it objectionable. Sometimes it's, I think Ryan a is a bot. <laughs> right, yeah. If, if, I'm, if I'm objecting to something you're saying, then I, yes, I, totally. People always think that their opponents are bots. Uh, now, that, but they think they're state-coordinated bots. What they forget is that there is money to be made by producing what, what we called in 2015 fake news, mm-hmm. like, which was literally fake news. Yes getting written in Romania or somewhere, in Moldova. Like, you won't um, believe which 70s child star has yes. cancer. Or like, like uh, or like, you know, four bodies found in Hillary Clinton's trunk. Yeah. And it would be abcnewsgogo.com mm-hmm. or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it would look like an ABC News site, but it wasn't. Yeah. And, and then you would then buy ads. Those Moldovans would then buy ads on Facebook and Twitter because the the money that they could make by going viral was more than it would cost them to make ads. So it was, <laughs> it was just a business proposition. And so that's, what you're, that's probably what they're finding here. Less than $10,000, lone, lone wolf type stuff. They're, what they realize is that they can just set up a fake website, write outlandish things that the American uh, news consumer will, will gob, gobble up. And the way that they get over the hump of not having a legitimate news operation is they would spend money on Facebook or Twitter, just a small amount of money just to get it, get it moving and then hope that it would go viral. And so that, that, that is a problem. Like that's something that I think all of us would prefer was, is not part of our discourse. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that this is Vladimir Putin doing this. No, and it was 
Democrats conflating a serious problem with something that was, I mean, questionable at best to push reports in media, to push reports all over the place. And it's just a great look back into how I think paralyzing for Democrats, the specter of Russian collusion was for such a long time. Yeah. And it's the macro version of what we were talking about. Yeah. You always think that any critic of yours must be a bot. Well, they lost an election. Yes. We couldn't have been rejected. Like, it must be all bots. It was exactly yeah. that. Yeah. And Hillary Clinton to this day oh, yes. uses the Russia collusion cope. Yeah. Um, and I think that's completely true. Uh, and it's a good glimpse. These The documents Sabi released were, it, it was sort of like a time machine. Like, I had been transported back to 2017. Um, and you were in the midst, in the throes of this obsession. And it's another great reminder of how the, the fevered uh, freakout over Russian collusion really, really deserved a whole lot more skepticism from reporters like the ones at BuzzFeed who carried water for Mark Warner in this case and for Democrats in Congress, rather than um, taking both sides of the story here, Twitter side, uh, the the Mark Warner side, and you know, maybe adding a little skepticism of both sides. Former FTX founder, the disgraced Sam Bankman-Fried arrived in court yesterday. Let's roll some video of that. Well, he had the courtesy of wearing a jacket, right? He did. He did wear a jacket and a, and a backpack. I, I'm doing Sagar's work today. I love the I love the news cliche of disgraced, though. It's, it just it just it just it goes into every piece of copy. <laughs> It's like, it just becomes part of your name. Disgraced Intercept DC Bureau Chief. Disgraced Intercept DC Bureau Chief. <laughs> one day, one day, I will get, I will get there. So you, if you live long enough in this business, you wind up the disgraced. Someone will call disgraced. you disgraced. Absolutely. Can't wait for that. So what stands out to you from the video and from SBF's decision well, here to plead not guilty? Backpack is classic. You know, he's still, he's keeping it real. Yeah. So he kept it real by two going. Two strapping. Yeah, you know, two straps. Right. You know, unafraid. So he goes in there. He he's pleads not guilty. Two of his uh, underlings, including his uh, what sort of uh, former girlfriend, have f- turned state's evidence and are now uh, going to testify against Bankman-Fried. She may, Caroline Ellison, she may face up to, what, five, five years or so, uh, which, which suggests that if she was willing to plead guilty and plea for five years, that they have enough evidence that uh, her lawyers were able to persuade her that she was looking at decades if she didn't do that. And so, therefore, uh, is... Bankman-Fried looking at decades, you think? I would think so. Um, absolutely. And there's a big question mark here. As to when he's pleading not guilty, um, I'm curious what you think of this. What does he think? How does he think? If Carolyn Ellison has, has flipped, and all indications point to it, that's absolutely what's happening, which means, by the way, other people probably will be very eager to cooperate as well. Um, what on earth does he think he can argue against all of that? Well, maybe, I mean, maybe he can get some charges knocked down. Uh, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe there's some type of guilty plea that he can enter, but he can't, you, you can't just enter a guilty plea right off the bat yeah. without, uh, without any deal being offered. Like, because what do you have to lose at that point? Yeah. You might, as, you might as well take it to trial and see if you can. So you don't think he's like going to do this to the bitter end? You think this is part of a give and take possibly? I, you know, it's hard to tell because this 
guy, that, you know, there was this reporting that Michael Lewis mm-hmm. uh, was at his house while he was on out on bail, yep. talking about you know what they're going to do with the film, and you know probably doing some more interviews about like you know what was it like getting indicted, and mm-hmm. filing for bankruptcy because Michael Lewis, author of the Great Short, uh, of the Big Short, um, it was and, great, uh, and a ton of a ton of incredible books. He started out with Liar's Poker. Uh, he was a trader mm-hmm. back in the 1980s, and then ends up writing about Lehman, which then ends up fueling the uh, the financial crisis in 2007, 2008, with the very mortgage-backed securities that he wrote about in Liar's Poker, which is an incredible book. Uh, and that's that's before you get the Moneyball, Blindside. He's, he's just had this run of just incredible both luck and talent. And the, the luck lands again, where he spent the last six months or year or whatever with FTX. Like he, he was able to see a good story. Before I don't think he knew, it was crumbling. Right. I don't think he knew it was going to be this good. <laughs> but he knew it was going to be good. And so for Sam Bankman-Fried to basically have carried on as if nothing has really changed, DMing uh, with reporters, doing Twitter spaces, doing interviews, just ha- just hanging out and being a dude. Incriminating himself. Incriminating himself constantly. And that's what I don't understand about this, oh, so the two possibilities here, give and take possibility, you know, he's, he's this is part of a, a way to sort of negotiate with law enforcement, or he rides this out to the bitter end, I'm curious as to whether he's actually going to ride this out to the bitter end precisely because of what you just said, the the hubris that he has in sort of chatting with reporters, incriminating himself, doing interviews, looking so casual and relaxed about the whole thing. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, I think maybe he thinks he can muddy the waters, hire really good lawyers, and um, I believe he has one of Ghislaine Maxwell's uh, defense attorneys. There you actually, go. And just work his way through the situation um, because the law has been too loose around crypto, period. Um, that it's not, you know, the, is the law actually there to say this is a slam dunk um, for decades in prison? I don't know. Right. I have heard some experts who will say that, look, there are so few rules around crypto mm-hmm. that they're going to have to get him on uh, on ticky tax stuff, like Al Capone style, exactly. tax evasion stuff. Like, like in other words, what, there's going to be a ton of wire fraud, which is just... There's always... It's, it's, it's the crime that everybody's committing all the time. Your favorite Real yes. Housewife, Teresa Judice. That's right. That, that was one of the charges that they, that they hit her with. And they, they, they hit her with the, the kind of the, the pencil whip in your mortgage thing where you're like, oh, yeah, my house. Like, which Trump does all the time, which is like, <laughs> you're going to a bank for a loan. What's your place worth? Eh, that, that house worth $800,000. But you know it's worth like six, $600,000. Yeah. And her, actually it was her husband doing it. Um, so she got railroaded. <laughs> He also got railroaded. They deported the guy. It's so ridiculous. He lives in the Bahamas complete. now, not with FTX, but is he in no. the Bahamas? I thought he. Yeah. I mean, he was in Italy for a while. He was, he, yeah. and then he went to the Bahamas. You have not been keeping. I up. have not. Yeah. <laughs> the, the Joe Judice Chronicles. <laughs> well, can we put C two up on the screen because this adds a wrinkle to the conversation from a sort of thirty thousand foot perspective that I found really interesting. This is a column from John Tamney over in Real Clear Markets who, who wrote the Sam Bankman Freed collapse is a paradoxical sign of progress. Now Tamney is super libertarian and he's writing um, and he he references one of his own columns from June twenty twenty one that said in the headline, we'll know crypto is for real when its coins start collapsing. John is a writer that I respect because he's totally consistent on his libertarianism. <laughs> you know, it's not like you're, you're, you're not sort of like just trying to piece together an ideology from what's happening in the news. As you can see from the fact he wrote that in June of 2021, it's been consistent. What do you think about that? 
take that I've heard it increasingly from crypto quarters as well over the last couple of weeks and since the FTX stuff started to come into full bloom is that basically these are the growing, growing pains that suggest crypto is here to stay. What is here to stay is what I would ask. Like what, are, what is crypto? What is like? What is it? Post gold standard. What right. is money? <laughs> right, and, right. It's, it's, if crypto is money, then it's done. Then it's done for because it's not money, and no, it's and it's not circulating in the way that money is. If crypto are securities, which uh, that they're now being regulated, or they're now being hinted at being regulated as securities, that means a security, as in a basically a stock certificate that represents a company. Okay, what does the company make? For a while, you can say, well, oh, it's this blockchain technology that's going to revolutionize everything. And then it, it, it reveals actually the blockchain technology isn't actually that great and mm-hmm. nothing that super innovative about it. And it doesn't scale. And so it's very hard to see how that is a product that's, that this stock certificate is related to. So then, then what is it? And as Bankman Fried described it, it is somebody's belief that it is worth something. Mm-hmm. And as long as that belief maintains and it continues to be worth something. And as long as you can continue to say, get attract people in with advertising and with offers of you know, 9% interest rate, then, it can, then people's belief can stay in that. But what Bankman-Fried was doing was describing a pyramid scheme, that you, as long as money keeps coming in, then you can keep putting some money out without actually producing any product. And so I haven't seen anybody in the crypto space uh, argue for what the kind of use case is for it that would justify the valuation of it if it's not money. And, it, but, and it's so far, it is, it is not money. And, there's no, and I don't see any evidence that it's going to tip over into money. And so I think that it's a little bit too convenient to say that, well, the collapse and the failure of this project shows that some of it is going to work. That, that's not enough. Like, you have to show, okay, fine, you're getting rid of the scoundrels. Mm-hmm. But what is it about the ones that are still there? Like what fundamentally is it about them that is going to survive a tight money situation and that is producing value to society, which then translates into wealth? Because you have to have some value. Yeah. Otherwise, it's just a pyramid scheme. And John's argument hinges on that because he compares this specifically, he says history is repeating itself. Um, he compares it to cars. He says in the early parts of the 20th century, thousands of car makers or would-be car makers were matched with capital. Just about every single company created failed. Fast forward to the end of the 20th century, something similar happened with the internet. And to your point, mm-hmm. both of those are predicated on a tangible service. Right especially cars. I mean, that's even more obvious, but the internet in ways that uh, were maybe a fuzzy, I just combined fuzzy and hazy, (laughs) one word, uh, at the time, but are now very clear to us, the tangibility of the the internet as a product. So yes, if you're trying to add crypto into that mix, um, it's easier to see what the difference is. One of these things is not quite like the other. Right. Pets.com might have been a ridiculous company that wasn't worth $100 billion, (laughs) but you can imagine a website that Sold pet-related products as being a company <laughs> yeah. that like made money. Yeah, it's a service that it, people will buy. Yeah, probably. I mean, that that exists now. I don't know if is it Pets.com. I don't know <laughs> what happened to Pets.com? Uh, but <laughs> I don't know, what, what did you did you did you find anything in that argument to to cling to? No, for I mean crypto, I, crypto folks. I always, it just forwards to PetSmart. Oh, Pets.com forwards to PetSmart. <laughs> That's really funny. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean I think I always enjoy the the uh, sort of sincerely argued 
devil's advocate point to media frenzies yeah. because it's not a point anybody's making in the media. But I think in other sectors of the economy, perhaps like social media, for instance, where the bubble might be popping, it's a, an argument that's sort of well worth considering that maybe this is growing pains that, you know, it's hard to see the, the forest for the trees um, when you're in the middle of something. So, but no, when it comes to crypto, again, I, it's very, very hard to say where all of this goes. Uh, maybe there's a remote possibility yeah. that this turns out to be correct. I agree more with you. I think they kind of tried to make a forest without trees. <laughs> and it turns out you need both. And you really? can't have one without the other. Yeah. <laughs> that would be my take. We're moving on now to the tragedy out of Idaho that continues to develop, at, to develop as we learn more about the 28-year-old suspect, Brian Koberger, who was arrested at his parents' home in Pennsylvania after he drove miles and miles, thousands of miles, with his father across the country from where he committed the crime, allegedly, to then Pennsylvania. And that, that Cartwright country, Stroudsburg. Oh, yeah, that's right. It's a district that Ryan has paid very close <laughs> attention to. Um, the, the white Hyundai Elantra that police had told everybody to be out on the, on the lookout for, um, this is an interesting part of the puzzle. We've learned now that he was pulled over twice by Indiana police while he was driving from Washington, where he lived very close to Moscow, Idaho, um, on his way to Pennsylvania with his father. His dad flew out to Washington. We're sort of piecing these puzzles together, uh, piecing this puzzle together. Um, but that white Hyundai Elantra that police said, D2, yeah, let's roll D2. Police said to be on the lookout for this white Hyundai Elantra. They said they didn't know the license plate from it because they had footage of the car going sideways um, in the vicinity of the house where the murders happened. Uh, they didn't know the license plate number. It turns out that Indiana police pulled that car over with Koberger and his father in it twice for traffic questions uh, on their trip back from Pennsylvania. That car was in the driveway of, the, of his parents' house in a gated community in Pennsylvania when he was arrested just several days ago. Indiana police again say they did not have the information about the license plate and about that car. Obviously, there are many, many Hyundai Elantras from that time period. I think it was 2013 through 2016 um, out on the market. It's too generic, uh, but they say the lic that license plate wasn't available in mid-December when they made Made these traffic stops. Um, so again, you have a situation incredibly frustrating. I can uh, imagine for the families where uh, this, this guy was driving across country with his father. We know he was a criminology student. He has a master's degree uh, in, in what is it, criminal studies or criminology from DeSales University. Um, we're learning more details about his life. Ryan, these new developments uh, are, are just peeling back predictable layers of an onion. Um, and there's obviously a lot of intrigue surrounding this. He appears to be a pretty textbook case of a suspect <laughs> in a tragedy like this. What do you make of it? What he says he looks forward to, or his lawyer says that he looks forward to uh, exonerating himself. Uh, but the way that he uh, got arrested ra you know, raises real questions about, you know, about our, our current approach to DNA, DNA collection, mm -hmm. and the way that uh, government authorities are able to access that DNA, that DNA database. And so it turns out that it wasn't that he himself had done an Ancestry or 23andMe or what, uh, whichever the ones that uh, are more willing to D1 give up. up. Yeah, we can put D, we can put D1 there. Uh, uh, but some, there was some relative of his great grandfather or something. Basically, like, like you were saying, all you need is a close relative. So if you're out there saying like, wow, this isn't a problem for me uh, because uh, A, I don't commit murder, 
uh, and B, I've never you know, submitted my DNA test anywhere. Well, hopefully you don't ever commit murder, mm -hmm. but also it doesn't matter if you have submitted your own DNA to 23andMe or, or any of these sites. It's out of your hands now. It's out of your hands because if somebody in your family, and we're talking distant, distant family, somebody that you've never met would, would qualify for this, they were able to then uh, track, you know, track the DNA that way. Uh, and so it, the, the, uh, the article that you were mentioning raises all of the privacy implications of this. And I wonder if this is something where the horse is out of the barn. It is. Um, and and it, it, you know, what, what, what kind of rules at this point could you put in place? Because you also have government authorities, including Chinese government authorities, who, are, who get around kind of court orders, subpoenas, and other restrictions and civilities by just straight up buying it. Mm -hmm. So they'll say, hey, look, this is for sale. Like this, this evidence is for sale to the public. Yeah. So this is just like us reading your, your tweets. If you put your tweets out uh, on a public timeline, then we're going to read those. Now there are actually restrictions on how the, whether the FBI is able to collect and analyze them. They're not, they're not supposed to do that. They can read them, but they can't collect and analyze. Whatever. The point is that once all of this stuff is in the public domain, uh, governments are just going to ex exploit access no matter what the what the laws are. Yeah. It, and the pro and then the further problem becomes every victim of this, so to speak, is the least sympathetic person you could possibly imagine. Oh, of course. Like uh, assuming that uh, the allegations are true, this is somebody who killed four innocent people for for as. Absolutely no, just d deranged, no reason. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, and so to then say, well, it's a shame that the way he was caught. It's yeah. a shame the way it doesn't make you sound like a very sympathetic uh, actor it, in the argument. And it doesn't move the chains in policy world at all. Right. Period. Yeah. And that's who you, how you who, get to what member of Congress are you gonna get to be stand up at this point? Yeah. Well, and this is sort of famously used in the case of the Golden State Killer, but my colleague, Evita Duffy, who wrote that article that was up on the screen, uh, she actually reminded me of another case. She, she writes, in 2019, GED Match helped solve the assault case of a 71-year-old woman who was strangled while practicing the organ alone in a church. Per GED Match's terms of service, the site would only share users' DNA with law enforcement in the case of sexual assault or homicide. Since the Utah victim was not sexually assaulted and survived the attack, GED Match was not supposed to share users' data to solve the case. However, the company's founder decided to hand over DNA data anyway. The offender was subsequently, subsequently caught and GED match users' privacy was breached. And again, what do you do to put the genie back in the bottle? Right. Absolutely nothing. There's nothing to be done in that case, period. Um, and how do you argue against it? How do you argue? It's, it's the same difficulty. It's, it's similar to the difficulty people have in defending free speech, especially in the sort of social media climate where mm -hmm. there's so much like finger pointing and there's so much bad faith argumentation. If your champion of free speech is, uh, let's say, um, you know, the ACLU, for instance, used to put out press releases about defending the rights of awful Nazis right. to march in Skokie, Illinois. They don't want to come anywhere near that stuff with a 10-foot pole, pole anymore because of the, we exist in the social media world. Right, yeah, who wants to make the case that, well, hey, look, uh, this woman was only nearly murdered. Right. And not murdered according to your terms of service. You should not have you know, allowed access to this DNA. Yeah, you look like a ghoul making that argument. And if there, if there isn't a kind of kind of cultural respect for the value of, of privacy and for civil liberties, then you don't have anything to stand on. You don't have anything to embed yourself in when you're making that argument. And, and you just look like a freak. Yep. Yeah, and tragically, this story looks like it's headed straight to the sort of true crime uh, 
books, like the the stacks of true crime right. books that have been written, but in a way that is, uh, I think, sensationalist and uh, overly sort of drenched in, in intrigue that distracts from the victims and is more focused on uh, the, the suspect uh, who may eventually be convicted as the killer himself because it's such a, it, it, it's such a crazy story. If you have a criminal justice student who, or criminology student who's studying serial killers, studying murder, is uh, on on Reddit, we now know, uh, asking survey questions uh, to people who have, have actually been in prison um, about sort of topics like these. So it, it's headed straight in that direction, being one of the yeah. sort of infamous serial killers that you know deserves really no part of the, the, the infamy, no part of the fame in the infamy question at all. Um, Although the person seems, the twist being the denial yeah, well, that'll be, yeah, that'll be Which quite maybe, interesting. Which maybe, maybe just a weird case of mistaken DNA identity. Who knows? But, like, it certainly doesn't seem that way. <laughs> it doesn't seem that way. They've pinpointed, according to police, this is according to police, they have pinpointed uh, location data, and they've mm. pieced together, a, uh, they say they've pieced together a pretty uh, plausible explanation yeah, of how you, it all you happened. Can't, you can't do four murders anymore with, uh, with iPhones and with... You know, your easy pass and everything else they've got on you. And then to get nailed with a DNA on top of that. Yeah. They like you, you, so if, if you were thinking of doing four murders, like I would suggest you don't do them because you're, you're not going to get away with those anymore. Well, that's one of the interesting parts of this is they say again that, and I have no tr- problem whatsoever with true crime intrigue at all. I mean, I, I love it myself, but they're obviously. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, yeah, I have no problem with I, I love murders. committing crime. Yeah. <laughs> yes. no, uh, no, no, no. I, I love the, all the true crime series. I have, I have zero problem with that, but obviously I have problem with the times that it's it's so sensationalist, and we've seen a lot of that in the coverage you know, from the New York Post and the Daily Mail and others who have some really good reporting, but the way they frame it, I think, is unfortunate sometimes. But that is one of the interesting case, cases here. Cops say they have uh, location data of him pinging really close to the, the victims um, through a long period of time, so he was perhaps following them. They also say, though, that there's perhaps he was wearing gloves um, in oh, a gloves. grocery oh, the, store. Yeah, gloves. That, that, that should protect you when, when your phone is trying to like get onto the Wi-Fi of your victims. Right. As long as you've got gloves, you're going to be fine. There was you know? some, perhaps there was some effort made while he was following them to conceal his identity. We, again, all of this stuff is preliminary, but uh, certainly a case that will follow, especially the DNA angle. Um, but prayers go out to the, the victims' families and the entire community, small community that has just been in this totally whole, uprooted yeah, for weeks. Not not only are four lives ended, four families uh, changed forever. The entire community will mm-hmm. will reel from this for decades. The school, yeah, absolutely. All right, Brian, what are you looking at today? What is, I love yeah. asking this, what is your point? What is, I don't have any point today. Yeah. <laughs> no, the, my, my point today, I'm looking at the uh, the unusual, unusual whales, uh, who runs a great Twitter account that ex- has been exposing uh, in, kind of in, in real time, uh, along with a lot of other great reporting that's been done. Business Insider uh, made it, I think, uh, didn't they do like, like a year-long investigation into this? And finally, pressure uh, has been building on Congress to do something about it. And then Nancy Pelosi kind of just sabotaged the talks at the very end and stepped down as speaker. Now, Kevin McCarthy has sworn that he is going to ban this. Like he said this to kind of embarrass Pelosi. Uh, so we'll see. If Kevin McCarthy does become speaker, we'll see if he does this uh, as one of his first acts or not. Uh, 
so I wanted to I wanted to run through Unusual Whales put out a put out its annual report on 2022 spending. If we can put up that uh, that first element there, 2022 stock trading report. And so he, he I think he, he he runs through a lot of the numbers and has a bunch of kind of. Uh, you know, help, helpful little bars that we can talk about here. So first of all, it does appear that I think two things combined uh, to reduce the amount of trading that was done in Congress. I think one is the public condemnation of it, that it, it just became kind of the juice not worth the squeeze anymore. But I, also, when the market is is receding, you're, you're making less money, you're less inclined to, to play around in it. Everybody thinks they're a genius when the market is rising because their trades are all paying off. Uh, and then people real, quickly realize that they're not geniuses at all when the, when the market is retreating. And we're gonna get to how uh, Pelosi's family lost 20%, which actually lost to the market, which is fascinating um, in, in a minute. Uh, but we put up this second one. So that, that what that shows you right there is that uh, the number of, uh, the amount of trading went down. And so for the next one, it goes to, here, yeah, that one right there. Uh, this, is, this compares the total value traded by members of Congress. Uh, one of the few people that increased significantly the amount of trading, Rokana, um, who I think his spouse is uh, super, super wealthy and the spouse, uh, spouse trading gets thrown into this uh, as well. Uh, that's the case with, uh, with Pelosi, her her husband Paul is a literal trader. Like that's his that's his job. Uh, th- and then you have jo- then you have Josh Gottheimer down here after Michael McCall, you know, Archbishop. Josh Gottheimer, who we're going to get to later, traded some sixty four million dollars in options, call call buying and selling call options. Uh, but here he has he's down from one hundred thirty three million in trading down to fifty two million uh, in stock trading uh, this year. Uh, Rick's Rick Scott. Uh, not surprising, right? That he's one of the biggest traders out there. Uh, Bill Haggerty, that one surprise you? No, no. 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 Then Tommy Tuberville got himself caught up in some really sketchy trades. Uh, I guess no, nobody has kind of confused him for a stock market genius either. He's like, wait a minute, Tommy, where are you? <laughs> where'd you get these ideas? Uh, and then Richard Blumenthal, Connecticut, uh, which is like the land of the traders. Mm-hmm. And so. It wouldn't be surprising that Richard Blumenthal also would be like, Richard, where'd you, where'd you hear that? Yeah. Uh, on, the tr- on, tr- on, the, on the flight back to Hartford? On the train, or, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the train, like, um, and he has also done a bunch of um, good reporting on the relationship between uh, the amount of lobbying that's done mm-hmm. and then the amount of trading that's done. So if, if you're lobbied by a particular industry, you're more likely to trade stocks of that industry. Mm. And you can imagine how that's happening. Mm-hmm. So somebody's coming in, they're telling you what they, what they want to do on this, what they want on this particular bill. And then they're also saying, hey, and by the way, it would be really great for us because, you know, one of our drugs is about to be approved for stage three, you know, phase three FDA. Uh, and this is why that's important for us to have this particular type of regulatory relief and the member of Congress is like, what'd you say again about that phase three? When's that, when's that, hit, when's that news hitting? Oh, October 15th, sir. Just, just happy to share this information with you. And then boom, October 13th, you see this member of Congress buys a bunch of stock. And you know that they were lobbying. You don't know what happened, but you can put, you can put two and two together. So but the you next, can't prove it. You can, well, you can only prove it when you get... Uh, when you, wh- whose phone did they bug? Like they actually caught some people like actually... Uh, uh, Chris... Chris Cox? Chris, that, uh, no, 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 not... 
In New York. New, in, yeah, New York, yeah. New York congressman who actually like they like got him like on the phone. Mm-hmm. Um, although, yeah. Anyway. Um, and, so, and they also always say it's in a blind trust. Oh, it's in blind blind yeah. trust. Don't I couldn't see it. it. I was just talking yeah. about it. <laughs> uh, and so that, let's let's put the one that says top ten stocks bought by house. Uh, reps in 2022. I thought this one was interesting too. Look at Tesla. Uh, Democrats uh, of the six million dollars worth of Tesla's stock purchased, almost all of it was by Democrats. First of all, they took a bath on that, right? I mean, that mo- that six million dollars is now worth about a million dollars or two million dollars, depending on when they depending on when they bought it. We'll see what happens next year. <laughs> yes. Uh, so it looks like Republicans were smart not to be buying Tesla in 2022. Uh, you, you also see the same partisan um, divide here with Apple and Disney and Google um, and M- NVDA, I don't even know what that one is. Um, so what, what, what did you think of that, uh, that Tesla breakdown? How funny is that? It's also, really it could just be, the, the, and the problem, and he makes this point, uh, it could just be Pelosi. Or, or like Ro Khanna. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. in a bunch of his stats, he just pulled Pelosi out. Mm-hmm. It's like she ruins all the data because well, she trades so much, or her husband trades so much. So what is the um, what is the breakdown? You mentioned the Gottheimer breakdown. What is interesting about his trading? Because Tesla, to me, is a good reminder that like Elon Musk, especially with Tesla, has been trying to do this sort of private public public private partnership thing mm-hmm. for years where he is he has been very heavily subsidized and Teslas are very heavily subsidized they're only at the price point they are because of like very heavy, right. heavy subsidies from democrats that have been so interested in this transition to renewables um, and green energy and that's why they've always been generally very supportive of Tesla and it wasn't a toxic stock it wasn't a toxic company to be in the mix with at all until Elon Musk started flirting with buying Twitter basically um, which, again, then Tesla stock has gone down over the course of the year. But what's the deal with Gottheimer? So, yeah, put the, so put the next one up. This is options contracts um, traded, traded in Congress. And you see Pelosi, as expected, like, so this is, like, her husband's a trader. He's going to be trading options. Uh, but Josh Gottheimer, so $64 million in, in call options in 2021, uh, $23 million in call options in 2022. Uh, just ex- an extraordinary amount of options trading. Now, Gottheimer represents a lot of the bankers because the bankers, a lot of them live in northern New Jersey, mm-hmm. which, which he represents. Uh, uh, the, the, the report points out that a lot of his options trading was done in Microsoft, and he used to work for Microsoft under, under Mark Penn. Uh, you know, if you remember, they did that that Mark Penn was leading their kind of anti-Google uh, and also like this very kind of cutthroat DC operation that they were running for a while and, and Gottheimer was was a part of that. Uh, so to be trading, you know, tens of millions of dollars worth of options, a lot of them related to a company that you used to work for, <laughs> be an executive in, while serving in Congress representing probably as, as many uh, stockbrokers and other bankers, as Richard Blumenthal represents in Connecticut, it, it is just a real kind of thumb in the face of the American public. It feels like. Yeah, and this is all happening thumb post. In the eye. 
Yeah, right? maybe some yeah. of the uh, This is all happening post Stock Act, all caps Stock mm-hmm. Act, which was something. Which is why, we, which is why we know about the trading. And yeah, that's true. And it was something that Pelosi sort of championed. But it's a good example well, of like, reluctantly championed. Reluctantly, yes. but then, but then eventually, like she's talked about it since it's passed and says oh, we've got it on the books. Um, but this is a, the point: is that there's no shame. And one of the interesting things from the recent Pelosi documentary that her daughter Alexandra did is how frequently Paul Pelosi is in the room during those phone calls. Mm -hmm. There's no connection made at all to this, of course, in Alexandra's documentary, but from if you put two and two together with this topic that we're discussing right now and you just see how often he's in the office, um, it, how often there's there's business in their condo, there's business in the car, he's always around. And you can, there's no possible way that it's, you can have, what, the Stock Act, sure, but unless you totally ban trading, which Kevin McCarthy can say he'll do, I don't believe anyone is going to ban trading, um, but in Unless you ban trading, if spouse trading too, I don't see how you can uh, truly, truly make this fair. Um, because I mean, you just look at that. He's he's there everywhere. He's hearing everything. And if you're a smart trader, you can you can figure it out. And we know, although they lost yeah. this year, although they lost, so yeah, actually put up put up this next one. This but, is this is average stock returns in 2022. And can you break down why that doesn't? That, why that doesn't just sort of negate the question of corruption. Well, right, just because you failed at, yeah. <laughs> at, at getting rich in, the, in one particular year. And also, it's the, it's the appearance of it. And you could, you, I think that's all you need right there. I think the public sees members of Congress trading stocks while also having power over the economy mm-hmm. and over these companies as wrong. Like, whether they're beating the market or losing to the market isn't really the point. The, the point is that it just looks wrong and it erodes faith mm-hmm. in, in Congress. Now, it turns out that they also do beat the market. And so as, as this one shows here, Republic, so uh, this is, and this is matched to basically like a standard and Poor's index, which uh, was down 18% over the year. So all, everybody was losing money here. Um, but uh, Republicans, uh, beat the market by 4.64%, and Democrats beat the market by 3.7%. Pelosi, uh, and I, I get, actually, if you take Pelosi out of that, then uh, Democrats did much better because Pelosi uh, lost 20%, the Pelosi's lost 20% over the year while the market lost 18%. So she, you know, they, they underperformed the market by, by 2%. Um, but the fact that year over year, on average, members of Congress are outperforming the market, mm-hmm. I think is an, all the proof you need that they have inside information. You've met these people. These, <laughs> these are not geniuses by any stretch of the imagination. Very stable geniuses. Very stable, very stable geniuses. <laughs> and if they can beat the market, then they have some information. Obviously. Yeah, there's yeah. no, like, yeah. And, and, and Unusual Wills is uh, often good as well as pointing out what committees they're on. And uh, right. Peter Schweitzer's done really good reporting on that too. It's just like the most obvious thing in the world. Run through the last two really quick. Um, this is a, Worth worth exploring if anybody watching feels like digging digging more into this. They, these are some breadcrumbs. Uh, these are the best best traders. Mike Kelly, a Republican, um, two hundred thirty nine percent gain, <laughs> matched to uh, or or beat against the SPY. Uh, and then David Trone, who's uh, one of the richest Democrats. He's the guy that owns Total Wine, uh, which is I, I don't know how national that chain is, but it's at least a 
in the mid-Atlantic. It's this like Walmart-sized liquor store. Yeah, I've been um, in one once and it just blew my mind. It's incredible. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's total wine. <laughs> it's, well, it's not totally wine. Right, but there's it's also total. beer and if the state allows it, liquor. And then if you, if you go down, you see other people who, who, did, who did pretty well. Aren't they, you know, aren't, aren't they lucky? Um, and uh, David Trone, I guess, feels like he deserves this because he also has spent something like $10 million every election cycle. Mm-hmm. Uh, his, his was the, I think he, I think his was the like most expensive primary ever up until Sam Bankman fried dumped an insane amount of money into a losing <laughs> district. Um, and so he has spent an or- enormous amount of money to be a member of Congress. Maybe this is just his way of uh, getting, getting a return on his investment. Get some of it back, yeah. 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 Well, that's why um, it was a good investment. And then finally, uh, another, some more breadcrumbs for people if they want. These are the top stocks purchased by Congress with the largest gains since Russia's invasion. Uh, and these are a lot of, these are a lot of we- weapons makers. Uh, of course. Unsurprisingly. Of course. So you don't think McCarthy is going to follow through on his promise to, to do this? No, I think the Stock Act is the best template of how Congress takes care of these things. Um, it's, it's a sort of symbolic gesture that takes a tiny, tiny step in the right direction while also shielding people's ability to continue uh, corruption um, because that's all they're capable of. That's all they have the will to do. So if you can package something uh, that doesn't really, I mean, because this is so existential for so many members of Congress, like you said, return on investment. Uh, this is considered you know, they, they make, compared to all the donors they spend all day talking to, <laughs> um, and the community business leaders they spend all day talking to, uh, they're, they're making south of $200,000 a year um, from their congressional salary, and they feel like they're entitled to more. They've they got to feed their family. Why am I in this room with all these rich people who are, you know, sucking up to me? Exactly. Yet, I have less money than them. just feels wrong. Yeah, or they, in general, have a lot of money to play with, and they're sort of the entrepreneurial-type people that say, I've got this money, I'm going to play with it, I've got the information, I'm going to play with it. But it's always just been considered, you know, that that 200 k a year isn't enough for me, so obviously I'm going to make money somewhere else. It's really an existential part of their lives. Um, So, no, I don't... You you would take, like, a Thomas Massey as Speaker of the House to get rid of that. Yeah, and I, I wonder if they feel like they... They deserve it in the sense that, let, let's say, a member of Congress is having dinner with somebody that they've known for a very long time, uh, but the person that they've known for a very long time is the head of an oil company, mm-hmm. or the head of a construction company, or head of a pharmaceutical company, and they're just so comfortable in their power that they forget that the reason that that person is friends with you, and the reason the person is buying you dinner, and the reason the person is telling you these things about their company, is that they're trying to corrupt you. Yeah. And it's I'm, and maybe it just becomes very difficult to see. You all, they also might just not care. It's a little like, you know. I'm just going for the grab. Yeah, I think yeah. some come up with justifications for it, and others just shameless, don't care. Yeah, yeah I think yes. I think if you're a total narcissist, you might just think, oh, it's because they love me. <laughs> yeah. I'm just and such an, an interesting person. Yes, I'm so good at yeah. my job. What's your point today? Well, Crystal actually talked yesterday about a Wall Street Journal article in which corporate bosses vented their frustrations about workers. You can see that up on the screen. Now, The New Yorker, they published a much better take on so-called quiet quitting. That was courtesy of Cal Newport, who wrote that the trend is, quote, the first step of a younger generation taking their turn in developing a more nuanced understanding of the role of work in their lives. These two positions, from the Journal and the New Yorker, are actually entirely related. And I actually don't doubt 
let's say some fraction of the workforce is actually getting lazier. Can you blame people though? American work culture has absolutely created immense prosperity. That doesn't mean it's perfect. Plus, when the labor market benefits workers and inflation is high, obviously people are going to demand more, especially when they know they can get a job that perhaps involves working from home with a flexible schedule. And hey, technology is making some folks very rich. Technology that is making some folks very rich is sapping others of their will to live, let alone to work. One 26-year-old British man told Common Sense last year, quote, the lowest possible quality of life you can have with the internet is still kind of tolerable. It's not absolutely awful. You can sort of exist in that. And there's nothing to give you a kick up the butt because it's not the worst thing. All right, so the labor force participation rate among working age men has dropped a lot. It's gone from about 94% in 1948 to 84% in 2015, with most of the drop actually happening since that period in the mid-60s. Women's labor force participation rate, meanwhile, has actually doubled over that same time period. As Nicholas Eberstadt told the fifth column this fall, quote, for every 25 to 55-year-old guy who is out of work and looking for a job in 2022, there are four guys who are neither working nor looking for work. But we needn't go far too far down that particular rabbit hole. Are people really getting lazier? And if so, is that even morally wrong or logically irrational? As Helen Mirren said on this week's great episode of 1923, what could humans possibly do with all of the leisure time new inventions like the washing machine and refrigerator have given us in the last century? Well, let's check back in with Cal Newport over at The New Yorker. It's hard to find references to the phrase, follow your passion in the context of career advice until the 1990s, at which point the adage explodes into common usage, Newport wrote. This passion-centric perspective attempted to thread the needle between the extremes that the boomers had experienced. Get a job, they told their kids, but make it one you love. Seek self-actualization, but also care about making your mortgage payments. Newport added, quote, before we heap disdain on Gen Z's travails, we should remember that we were all once in this same position. For me and my fellow millennials, Newport wrote, it wasn't that long ago that our own parents shook their heads at our confident plans to run an automated business from a laptop in Tulum. Now, I didn't plan that while Sagar was in Tulum, but I kind of think it's funny that that's where he is right now. There's a lot of debate over the relationship between wages and productivity over time. Jason Furman and the folks over at AEI say it's not a big deal and that, quote, greater productivity growth holds the potential of being the most powerful source of sustained wage growth across the income spectrum. Productivity inputs, though, are getting harder to measure as the common eight-hour workday with that hour lunch break fades away. Hourly workers are not immune from this. If a boss sends a text message or an email at any time, pretty much everyone is expected to respond. You could be at a pool party, you could be at the gym, but your phone is always there, and that means there's always a possibility of a dramatic request or a a minor request, but it's work-related nonetheless. And that is no small thing. It's not a matter of checking your phone for three seconds and just shooting off a quick reply. It is the psychic toll of never ever disconnecting. And that's not whining. It's a very real thing. For people with Zoom jobs, the luxury of flexible schedules means monitoring email and doing little bits of work here and there when you're with your family or just trying to decompress at the end of the day. Screen time is bad for our health. We know that. And jobs require more and more screen time in formal work hours, nine to five, and outside of them. It's almost impossible to add up all the little seconds here and there people spend working 
when they're not technically working. So yeah, some people might throw in the towel and others might get a little mad. Plus, Americans are working more hours, more weeks, and even small things like lunch breaks are declining. declining. We have the data on all of that. To my conservative friends, it's worth saying we don't necessarily need new regulations so much as we need fair interpretations of labor laws, defensible labor laws, that are already on the books. Not many people paid attention to it, but in the fall, the NLRB issued a memo that announced an investigation into, quote, unlawful electronic surveillance and automated management practices. As the NLRB said, quote, under settled board law, numerous practices employers may engage in using new surveillance and management technologies are already unlawful, already unlawful. The board pointed to several provisions in the FDR-era NLRA, National Labor Relations Act, that are potentially being violated. And crucially, they wrote, electronic monitoring and automated management are not always limited to working time. After the workday ends, some employers continue to track employees' whereabouts and communications using employer-issued phones or wearable devices or apps installed on workers' own devices, read the memo. And even before they continued, the employment relationship begins. Some employers pry into job applicants' private lives by conducting personality tests and scrutinizing applicants' social media accounts. This means work is now absolutely everywhere in a way that it never has been before. It's an incredible blending of the private and personal, just as Newport suggested Gen Z is experiencing. Of course, that's going to change employees. Of course, it's going to change everything. And it renders employees' problems reasonable in a way that many employers are not yet willing to accept. We're excited to be back now with none other than Matt Taibbi. You should check out taibbi.substack.com, TK News over there. Matt, welcome back to CounterPoints. Thanks for having me on. Of course, we're really excited. Uh, we talked earlier in the show about sort of the first dump of the two-part dump yesterday. There was so much information we want to talk to you about the belly button. Um, and maybe we have a picture of the lovely illustration of the belly button. <laughs> Twitter and the FBI belly button. Uh, now, Matt, you had a thread on this on Twitter. You had a post on it up on TK, which was excellent. Can you start just by telling us, <laughs> while people are looking at the lovely graphic, um, what the hell the FBI belly button is. It's actually really interesting. Uh, I know that picture is gross and kind of <laughs> off-putting, um, but it, it, in a way it kind of should be because uh, one of the things that we were focused on with these documents is trying to figure out the architecture of how information flowed to and from the government uh, with Twitter. And what this uh, thread is really about is how Twitter didn't really want to work with certain agencies for a variety of reasons. They had political disagreements. They thought the, the State Department, for instance, was too Trumpy. Um, and so they were putting up a front about uh, how many different agencies they wanted to give away their, their chief moderator's phone number to. And ultimately, they settled on a system where everything went through uh, the DHS and the FBI, and there's a passage where the FBI agent says, think of us as the belly button for the USG. Mm. So information is essentially, uh, and there's another passage where, where the, the agent says, the FBI will take care, uh, you know, we'll handle federal and the USIC and DHS will know what's going on in all the states. So that's how they did did up the, the the information. The moderation request came in on the federal and international side through FBI and domestically through the Homeland Security. 
And you also talked about this this one uh, back and forth around people who were retweeting or, or zero hedge or zero hedge articles or something. Zero hedge had been banned, but then people are still sharing some of the information, and they they, they said it led to quote another flurry of disinformation narratives around the time zero hedge had been speculating on the origins of COVID, whether whether or not it was a, a lab leak or natural origin. So what 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 what's going on with the, like are are they, are they zeroing in on zero hedge at, at this point and then trying to make sure that there's nothing com- emanating remotely from them and what el- what else did you find around this area? So I I think th- this this came from a report by the Global Engagement Center, which is like the fledgling intel arm of the State Department that nobody's <laughs> ever heard of. Uh, it was founded in the Obama years under Hillary Clinton. I think they wanted to make basically like the State Department version of the NSA. Um, and so it's kind of the weak sister of the intelligence community. And they issued a report in February of 2020 that basically identified a whole bunch of actors as potential cyber threats. And one of their criteria was um, sort of arguing that COVID might have come from a lab or retweeting news about Zero Hedge being banned from Twitter. And what this really offers you a window into is, is how government agencies decide that this or that account is suspicious. Like they have all these crazy criteria. Everybody thinks it's super sophisticated. It's not, it's really stupid. Like in another area uh, of, the, of, of these reports, they're talking about um, anybody who retweets two or more Chinese diplomats um, is now suspect uh, for being uh, for spreading Chinese disinformation, and that included like the Canadian military, like a, a CNN account. Um, so this just gives you a window into how they're how they're making those decisions. I think it also gives us a, a window into how, and this was another thing your your earlier thread yesterday reported on how reporters. Uh, promulgate and and fuel so much of this cycle. Your earlier thread, something like reporters now know this model works. There, that was an email from a Twitter reporter or a, t- a Twitter staffer. What did you find as it relates to this question in terms of reporters fueling and working with the government agencies, basically in service of, of censorship? Yeah, so I find this part fascinating. Maybe only other reporters f- find it interesting, <laughs> but um, you know, you might remember back in the WMD episode, there was this famous thing uh, involving Dick Cheney and this thing called stovepiping, where Cheney would reach into uh, one of the intelligence agencies and grab raw intel that hadn't been vetted, would feed it to a news agency or a newspaper like the New York Times, and then would go on uh, a show like Meet the Press and say, hey, did you hear about that New York Times article? Uh, and exactly the same process goes on here. Basically, you have you know either a government department like the Senate Intel Committee or some private researcher that's connected to the government that goes through a reporter and says, here are a bunch of suspect accounts we think are Russia linked. And then they will go to, to Twitter and say, we think these are Russia linked. Will you take action on them? Do you have any comment? And Facebook, not wanting to take the political hit, might suspend a few accounts. And then instantly they have a headline like, you know, Facebook uh, uncovers with our help, you know, Russian influence. 
And that's what the Twitter staffer was talking about, that this is a model that works. As soon as you get somebody to sign off on the idea that this or that account is Russia linked, you already you have an automatic news story. And they did that over and over again. And what's really interesting, I thought, in these documents is you see the Twitter staffer saying this is going to happen to us over and over again. And, and it did. I also want to ask you about this Yol Roth email that's number 17 in your thread, which I think actually kind of exposes the, the divide in such a profound way. And it's, it's, it's Roth referring to the DHS and FBI as, as apolitical. And he puts, general, he puts generally in parentheses to acknowledge that, okay, there's maybe there's a tiny bit of politics going on with DHS and FBI. But I, it's an internal email. I feel like when he's writing this, I think he, he means it. And, and the problem with this GEC, to, and you can talk a little bit about what GEC is, he, to them that was political. So what do, you, what do you draw from the fact that, and let's assume that he means it, that when he thinks of the FBI and DHS that he sees them as apolitical. What does that tell you about how Twitter was you know, relating to those those organizations, those government agencies. Well, it, clearly, I think they they moved, they brought themselves into a place psychologically where they were able to comply with really this unbelievably incessant stream of demands from agencies like the FBI and the DHS to um, eliminate certain accounts. They justified that on the grounds that all of these things were legitimate threats. They were legitimately dangerous. We legitimately had to worry about um, what he called major risks, which included, I guess, Donald Trump getting reelected. Uh, so when they were presented with an agency that was politically not in the same place as they were, and it happened twice that year, actually, I didn't mention this, but also that summer um, they refused to go along with a Pentagon program that involved uh, the army making fake accounts uh, to cover up for drone attacks. Uh, they uh, basically they, they decided that you know a more Trump leaning government agency was quote political, and the FBI, DHS. Uh, NSA, CIA, all those other agencies were not political. Uh, so that's how they justified dealing with all those those moderation requests. But I, I think it's pretty transparent what they were doing, and I think people will see it uh, that way too. Can follow up on that real yeah, quick. Uh, how does that relate to what you found? How does that rate, relate to Lee Fong's story? Oh, did yeah. they, did, once Trump was in. Were, um, or like, yeah, can you like what's the connection? Lee Lee Fong was on our show uh, a couple weeks ago talking about what he had found uh, in which Twitter was kind of whitelisting a bunch of Pentagon bots and Pentagon accounts that were that were doing uh, you know propaganda ar around the globe and around around drone strikes. Did they did they at some point then you found pushback against some they of this? Did. Were they going too they far? Did. Yeah, and and Lee even wrote about that. It, the the pushback uh, came in June of 2020. Uh, oh, it started okay, okay. with Facebook, ac actually. Uh, fa Facebook was the first company to say no, and then Twitter kind of followed their lead. But uh, essentially, the the Pentagon and you know, we can put Pentagon in parentheses because this really we're talking about the NSA in some cases. Um, they. Uh, they had been creating local foreign language accounts so that if, for instance, you did a drone strike in a foreign country where they speak Arabic 
And there were lots of local news reports saying, oh, they blew up a hospital and all these kids died. Suddenly you would see a flurry of fake accounts that would say, oh, no, actually, it wasn't that bad. There were no there were no serious casualties. And guess who that was? That was us doing that. Right. <laughs> so those were what we call influence uh, information operations. And they have been doing they've been going along with that for years. But the Pentagon had not had a good relationship with Twitter dating back to 2017. I was told this explicitly by uh, somebody in the defense community uh, that they had been basically ghosted by Twitter dating back to like the middle of 2017. Finally, in 2020, the companies banded together and decided not to do this anymore. And that story didn't come out until 2022. You might remember it from earlier uh, last fall when it came out in the Washington Post mm -hmm. that they, they had un uncovered a U.S. information operation. It was actually a Pentagon operation. It's really interesting. Um, one thing from all of these, all of the reporting that's happened during the Twitter files, to see how much business is conducted over email and Slack. I mean, one thing that's always plagued journalists, like to time, like forever, basically, is that nobody puts things in writing. You know, this is all phone calls or in writing. They say we need to move this to a phone call, uh, but so much of this was happening in writing um, and was etched in so-called like digital stone, maybe. Uh, but Matt, is that have you seen any effort? I'm sure there are couple emails where it's like, oh, let's chat over the phone, or I think I've actually even seen any of that. But have you seen any effort um, as you're going through these thousands, tens of thousands of emails to, to move conversations to phone? Not that I'm in favor of less transparency, <laughs> but did they really just think that this was kind of in a vault and was not a liability for them to be talking like this? They, they clearly thought that they they were extremely cavalier in what they were doing. There, there are moments where they say maybe this is more of a phone conversation. They also, um, and this is one of the things that came out in the second thread yesterday, the quote unquote industry call, which is uh, involved Twitter, Facebook, some other company and a whole bunch of other companies. Um, and then the DHS, FBI, director of national intelligence. And then there were a bunch of other agencies that were sort of auditing, they were in listen mode only. Um, all that was going on in Signal, which uh, is an interesting question because some lawyers have raised to me the, the issue of, um, you know, can you really send things um, in encrypted fashion or, or can you send documents that are timed to disappear, which is what happens through the FBI's teleporter program. Uh, if you're a government agency, you're supposed to re be recording everything. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so that's interesting. Like they had, I would say, on the whole, really terrible OPSEC on all this stuff. But <laughs> but in some cases, uh, you know, they're using methods that I'm not sure were legal if they're government agency um, uh, endeavors. So that it's both it's interesting on both fronts. Yeah, that happened here in D.C. Government officials were communicating over mm -hmm. signal and they had to stop that because yeah. it's not appropriate. Yeah. So right. You, well, that raises yeah. a lot of questions. I'm sorry to interrupt, but yeah. you had you had thousands and thousands of moderation requests coming in via signal and teleporter. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm not sure how much of that is ever going to be retrieved. And, and you know, is, is that OK? I'm not sure. Yeah. You know? Yeah, and so you and the other other reporters working on the Twitter files have been accused of quote unquote cherry picking. 
and, and I saw that you responded to that in one of your recent recent newsletters. Can you, can you elaborate on 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 your kind of uh, response to to that particular line of attack? First of all, I don't even know what that means. Like, <laughs> as opposed to what you know, the 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 absolutely perfect, even representative sample of humanity that you see on other news channels. Like, <laughs> like what what are they talking about? Uh, and, and if you see an email in a sea of emails where it says, hey, um, we're the FBI, all the reports that come in from the U.S. intelligence community uh, and from us will go through our channels and, and the Homeland Security is going to handle all the states. You're not going to pick that cherry, like I, you know. As a reporter, I don't, I don't really understand what they're arguing here. Yes, of course, we're taking the interest, interesting stuff. Um, but if you're, if you want to argue that there's some other email somewhere that says, "Oh, we're not doing this," um, I, I would feel ethically obligated to put that in there. I haven't seen that, uh, so uh, that's why I'm feeling confident in publishing this stuff. But there, there isn't really like a contra argument that that, that is not appearing in these emails. One thing that people have said. Uh, because I reported this initially, there were requests that came from the Trump administration um, and were honored. I was told that pretty solidly by former executives, and I felt obligated to report it. But I haven't seen it in the email record. So that, that's why people aren't seeing it. It's just that I don't have it in writing. Hmm. That is really interesting. And I really recommend folks follow your subsect to TK News because it's been helpful in sort of fleshing this out even more. Um, just yeah. great reads over there and hope you're able to get some sleep, Matt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you both. Of course. All right. Well, that does it for us on CounterPoints today. Ryan, fascinating reporting from Matt. Yeah, it's. I hope. It, I wish every company would just open up its archives. I know. And, I mean, and let people in. One of the interesting things I've seen is that Elon should have just dumped all of this WikiLeaks style, um, and you know that. I mean, yes, we would all love that from every major corporation, especially publicly traded ones. Um, but it's been. I mean, it gives me a lot of confidence when you have. Taibi and Li Fong going through all of this. And really, even though you can have these accusations of cherry picking flying back and forth, you can tell um, based on what's included that it's it's a, a good faith effort to really pull this back, pull back the curtain on what's happened at Twitter. Yeah. And like, like I said, it's, if and we had people should check out our interview with Lee be, uh, because he talked about the process that that mm -hmm. they go through in order to do the reporting. Basically, there's there's a lawyer who a Twitter lawyer who is designated uh, to work with the reporters, and uh, the the reporters then Lee, Lee would or Matt would send a request like I would like everything that matches the keyword of this, mm -hmm. and then and then it comes back from the uh, the attorney. Which so it's not the, the ideal process. There's no uh, you can imagine why a lawyer at a company would <laughs> say. We're not just going to allow a keyword search, yeah, and because there there are you know there are privacy laws around different personnel stuff, and and also that's not what they're necessarily looking for anyway. Mm -hmm. they're, not, they're not trying to get like into like people's like performance reviews or other like you know super personal stuff. They they want the they want the exchanges that are of public importance, right. So yeah, it, it wouldn't. It's not. It's not perfect. You'd rather have journalists have complete and unfettered access, but that's that just doesn't uh, exist absent 
a kind of a hack or, or a leak like Edward Snowden style type of type of dump. And even with those, you know, news organizations didn't didn't dump everything that Edward Snowden obtained. Yeah, and it's fascinating to watch the Washington Post, you know, call people like Matt conservative or call, yeah, I mean, it's just yes. like dismiss they, they everybody. They changed that. Did you see they that? They did. Yeah. yeah, they corrected it. It was like a little insult. Yeah. How do you like that that's an insult? Yeah, I mean, hey, it's been an insult in the the corporate press for a long time, um, but it's just their it's their cope and it's their scapegoat and um, but but it it shows you that they don't want to give the credibility to genuine left wing journalists that are doing this reporting because they want to somehow excuse it as being biased or cherry picked when in fact again uh, Matt and Lee have absolutely no incentive to carry water for Republicans or for the right period yeah. um, but it's easy to just sort of offhand uh, do the sort of yeah they're, they're just carrying water for the right thing. Um, it's not reality, but uh, that's the, the good news here is that lots of people now can see pretty clearly what was happening on the inside. Uh, also, I just noticed, speaking of seeing things pretty clearly, that uh, CounterPoints is now CounterPoints. Look at that nice, clean yes. uh, no, no, no logo. Friday, uh, yeah, yeah well, we'll probably be with you uh, not just on, on Fridays uh, in the future. Stay tuned for more information on that. We're excited to uh, keep going. Yep, and so that does it for CounterPoints Wednesday. Now everybody can uh, head on over to C-SPAN where you can binge that for the next day. They're about to start the, the fourth vote for Speaker, which will probably go about as well as the last did, but uh, we'll, we'll see. Stay it's tuned. Gonna, it's going to get interesting. See you soon. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. What's out there? is unknown. So at UC San Diego, out we go. Because to take on the challenges of the here and now, you gotta get your feet wet, your eyes open, and your mind out there. Way out there. Turning the unknown into cures, culture, and connections with each step forward. So pack a bag, a notebook, and some sandals. And get ready to look far and think further. UC San Diego. Learn more at ucsd.edu.